1: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: Hi,
2: it's David here. Today's episode is presented by one of the stories of our Times producers, Will Rowe. Do you want to just pull that mic towards you? Yep. Can you just give me a sound level?
3: We're here on a Thursday morning in October, 10 years after Armstrong um, went down.
2: A decade ago this weekend, we woke up to news that one of the biggest sporting stars on the planet was a cheat.
4: The global governing body of cycling has just announced moments ago it will ban Armstrong for life and strip him of his seven tour titles. The US anti-doping agency USADA says overwhelming evidence shows that Lance Armstrong was involved in what it calls the biggest drugs conspiracy in sporting history.
2: It was an incredible story. A man that had been held so high in the public's imagination had fallen so low.
1: One of America's most revered athletes, a cancer survivor and crusader, Armstrong will now be banned from cycling for life.
2: And the seven-time Tour de France winner's betrayal of those who believed was soon complete.
1: Did you ever take banned substances to enhance your cycling performance? Yes. Yes or no? Was one of those banned substances EPO? Yes.
2: But one journalist, above all, had always suspected something wasn't right and years before had set out to try and prove it.
3: I look back upon it as by far the best time of my journalistic life. All those years of chasing Armstrong.
2: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Will Rowe. Today, Lance Armstrong, The Flawed Fairy Tale. David, first question, really, simple one. Who are you? Please introduce yourself.
3: I'm David Walsh, chief sports writer at The Sunday Times. I've worked at the newspaper for 26 years.
2: David Walsh is, in my mind, one of the best sports journalists of his generation. But for all his work, his name
3: always leads you back
2: to one story.
3: There hasn't been one month in the last 10 years where somebody hasn't come to me and said something about Armstrong.
2: In the late 90s and noughties, David wrote loads of articles about Lance Armstrong. He sat in press conferences not believing him. He wrote books putting forward evidence against Armstrong. And at one point, he cost the Sunday Times £1 million after a libel suit. But it wasn't always like that. In fact, six years before Armstrong won his first Tour de France title, David had met him at a hotel close to the French Alps.
3: My grandiose plan was to write a book about the tour that would be a sporting version of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Because the tour is a pilgrimage, that's a legitimate comparison. And my first chapter was to be about a rookie riding the race for the first time. And I chose Lance Armstrong as the subject for that interview. And I spent three hours with him. I really liked the guy, warm to his brash nature, his desperation to be somebody in this sport.
2: So so back in 93, you're in this hotel and he's this young Texan and you're sort of enamored by him. Totally.
3: Totally. This guy wasn't going to kind of take no for an answer. He was going to be successful, kind of whatever it took. Now, I'm not thinking doping in any way. I'm just thinking of a young 21-year-old Texan who's coming to Europe to show them that he can win bike races.
2: Can you just describe, simple question, what is the Tour de France
3: and how do you win it? The Tour de France is a a three-and-a-half-week race. 21 days of racing spread over 23 days. You have to be the greatest all-round bike rider of your generation to win the Tour de France.
2: And without going too sort of deep into the mechanics of it, you need a certain type of physiology, don't you, to be what they call the general classification, which is the ultimate winner, the yellow jersey. So what is that physiology and, and did Lance Armstrong have it?
3: Well, the physiology of the Tour winner really is somebody who is very athletic, but you can't be too big because if you're too big, you're gonna struggle in the mountains. Lance Armstrong, he was a big guy and he just didn't seem like the kind of guy who would ever be this great climber. And he rode the Tour de France four times in his kind of first four attempts at the race and never came remotely near being competitive in the mountains.
2: After meeting Armstrong back in '93, David doesn't give the young rookie much thought until 1996, when he hears Armstrong has been diagnosed with testicular cancer.
3: You're feeling, oh, this is is a really tough situation for this guy, and the doctors are talking about him having a 50% chance of recovering from this, and you were hoping he would pull through. Armstrong did recover and would soon be back on the bike. It was
2: around this time he set up the Lance Armstrong Foundation, a charity to help those affected by cancer. It would later become the Livestrong Foundation. You might remember the wristbands, yellow plastic wands, a key fashion accessory in the early noughties. Now, during the 90s, something changed in cycling. In a sport with a long history of doping, a new drug known as EPO came on the scene. It was illegal,
3: but authorities struggled to monitor it. It created a generation of cyclists where people could vastly exceed their kind of natural potential. The guys who were natural climbers, who were more slightly built, thinner, smaller, lighter, would say, Now we have these big, bloody overweight sprinters who previously couldn't get over a humpback bridge. You were getting this huge surge of extra oxygen-carrying capacity, and it completely changed the game. And
2: just how much that game changed became apparent in 1998.
0: Last night, Jean-Marie LeBlanc, the director-general of the Tour de France, issued a statement saying that Team Festina, the number one team in the world, has been removed from this year's tour.
2: It would become known as the Festina Affair, after a large shipment of drugs was found in a support car which belonged to a French cycling team. Police raids soon followed and other teams were implicated. The sport's reputation was in tatters and in 1998 it was dubbed the Tour de Farce.
3: In relation to journalists, it was a really difficult moment because it's the moment that said, guys, all of you people have been complicit in defrauding the public. You've been presenting them as heroes when in actual fact they were cheats. I remember um, Jean-Michel Rouet, who was a cycling rider at the time with L'Equipe, and his line was, they have been fucking us for years, i.e. the riders. I would have said, Jean-Michel, they didn't have to try very hard. They didn't have to be brilliant to do that. We were kind of willingly buying their stories and not asking nearly enough questions.
2: How did you feel personally? Were you
3: you part of the problem? Yes, I was. Yeah, no question. I would have been one of the journalists who would have looked the other way, who would have hoped it was cleaner than it was. Did did your mindset in any way change? Oh, in 1998, absolutely. The doping was so endemic. It was so brazen. It was so extreme. And my attitude was... I'm never going to be as gullible as I was previously. And I went to the 99 Tour with a very different attitude.
2: So what happens in 99?
3: Jean-Marie Leblanc was the director of the Tour de France at this time, said, we have learned from the fiasco, we're now going to be a much cleaner race. You're going to see a different race.
2: And what does it do?
3: It doesn't change one bit, really. And a key influence in the direction that cycling took in 1999 was Lance Armstrong and the U.S. postal team, because he came into that race as a contender, not the favourite, but certainly a rider who had a chance. He's a very strong character. He said, look, guys, I will address this question just once. That's it. So what I'm telling you is that as as a group of journalists, you need to change
0: and once everybody realizes that they need to be professionals and they can't print a bunch of crap, then they'll realize that uh, that they're dealing with a clean guy. I mean,
3: and you need to see that cycling has changed. You need to understand that what you're watching are fantastic athletes doing a brilliant job, and that's what you need to write.
2: You're skeptical. You think nothing's changed. They're going as fast, if not faster, than they were on drugs the year before. Was there a specific moment when you realised, I don't believe this?
3: Yes. Day, Italy
2: and we climb to the top of Sestria. Two of the last three riders to win is Sestria have gone on to win the Tour de France.
3: Armstrong had been completely dominant during the first 10 days of the race. Then we go to the first mountain stage, which is going to decide who wins the Tour de France. Lance is there, up with the leaders.
2: Once we get to the slopes there of the climb up to Sestriere, then the big attacks will come.
3: And at a critical point in the race, he just accelerated clear of everybody. A lot of
2: riders in that group behind taking lists well, was an attack there by Armstrong. Well, the yellow jersey has obviously had a great day in his first day in the Alps here. Look at the acceleration of
3: this as he chases down those motorbikes. Five and a half hours he's been peddling today, marking everything, and now he's going to try and tear this race apart. And I stood in the press room and I watched this and. I remember the incredulity. There was a kind of an audible intake of breath where people are going, wow. And then there was almost a kind of a, a giddy laughter. And the laughter to me was people saying, oh my God, nothing has changed. This is ridiculous.
2: Armstrong really picked it up rapidly. And you can see how quickly Richard Virenk went out of the back.
3: Well, this can only tell us that, that uh, Lance Armstrong is feeling absolutely superb. Well, the journalists, many of whom might have been laughing at the moment it happened, when they come to write the reports, they have to be more conservative in their response, safer. Don't put themselves in danger of being sued for libel. And you have zero evidence that this ride was the result of doping. So you had this, this tension within the press room those who believed in Lance, and those who didn't.
2: This has to be the greatest comeback in any sport at all. The fact that Armstrong managed to conquer cancer was unbelievable. But the fact that he's riding like this in the Tour
1: de France is also impressive.
3: But the people at home who have watched it on TV, and whose views on this have been influenced by the TV commentary, which describes it as one of the greatest feats we've ever seen at the Tour de France. I remember having a conversation with Sunday Times Sports Editor at the time, Alex Butler. Alex was watching it on TV, being told about the back story, being reminded by the commentators of how brilliant a feat this is, and Alex is saying, this is a fantastic story, is Lance going to win?
2: Does he call you up to say this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
3: And uh, I say, yeah, Lance is going to win. And he said, God, you've got a great story then. And I said, I'm sorry, Alex, I don't believe it. And he said, oh shit, what are you saying? And I said, well, you know, and he said, doping. And I said, definitely. And he said, well, if that's how you feel, that's what you got to write within the laws of libel. That was the moment really, that phone call in a way cemented what my approach was going to be. So by the time He's winning the 1999 tour two weeks later. I remember writing a piece that was at the very least ambivalent. It basically said, there are times when you, can, you could celebrate a winner. There are times when you're better off keeping your arms by your sides. This is an occasion to keep your arms by your sides, folks. What we need here is not acclamation of a new champion, but an inquiry as to how this has come to be. And I remember um, feeling that I'd gone as far as I could go and then being startled by the headline in the Sunday Times on the piece. And the headline on the piece was Flawed Fairy Tale. And I thought, wow, that's a bit strong, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it, it was it was the most unequivocal line in the piece was the headline. And I have to give Alex, the sports editor, and whoever put the headline on it great credit because they were saying, David, this is what you believe, man. We know this is what you believe. And we know you've kind of hedged a little bit in the way you've written the piece. But this is it. And I thought that was, that was terrific uh, on their part. The reaction to that piece from our readers was, at least the ones who wrote emails, was damning. significant amount of readers hated the piece.
2: Have you ever had a piece with that kind of reaction?
3: never nothing like it. When I came back from that ninety-nine tour, I realised I was in a difficult position because I basically said, this guy's a cheat. And the newspaper had supported me in saying that the Sunday Times. And I wasn't really an investigative journalist, but I'm in this position now where I've got to come up with evidence. It was like I got myself in this battle where I, I have Readers of the Sunday Times who are skeptical about my point of view. So my kind of ambition now was to convince them that I had right on my side. In 2001,
2: you write a story about a man called Michele Ferrari. Who is he and what's that story?
3: Uh, Michele Ferrari was a sports doctor based out of the town of Ferrara in northeast Italy. And I discovered that he was being investigated by the police for doping riders. One of his clients was Kevin Livingston, a US postal rider who Lance described as like a brother.
2: They're on the same team?
3: They're on the same team and they were best friends. And my belief was that Lance had to be working with Ferrari. What I did was I had a very good friend, Sandro Donati, who worked for the Italian uh, Olympic Committee. And I asked Sandro, was there any way he could check if Armstrong worked with Ferrari from the police files? And what the police did was they rang up the local station in Ferrara and got two carbonieri to go around to the two best hotels, check the register and see does Lance Armstrong's name crop up? Because the only reason you'd be in a town like Ferrara is to visit the good doctor. So the police went round and found Lance's name all over the register of the two best hotels in town. So basically I had evidence that Lance was visiting a doping doctor who two months later will stand trial for doping riders. And I think that, that's it. But it wasn't. I mean, I wrote that story in the Sunday Times, saddled With Suspicion in 2001, and Lance had a press conference and he said, I believe Dr. Ferrari is an honest man. And everybody in the room seemed to say, that's great, Lance. Great that you think he's, he's honest. And we have our story now. Lance defends Ferrari. Welsh's story is bullshit. And I put up my hand to ask a question. I said, Lance, look, you are the icon in the sport now. You are the role model. You are working with the doctor, you admit, who is about to stand trial for doping riders. Given the problem that this sport has had, would you not suspend your collaboration with Dr. Ferrari until he's cleared? And Lance said, no, I won't. Because if I believe he's innocent, why should I? And that was it. Two days later, Lance wins a stage in the tour, and it's all forgotten. He's on his way to his third consecutive tour victory. But basically, people see what you do, and some people admire what you do.
2: One of those admirers was someone close to Armstrong, but was worried about speaking publicly. She was Betsy Andreu, the wife of Frankie Andreu. Frankie and Lance were always regarded as good friends. Betsy, who lived in Michigan in the States told a friend to get David to call her. So he did.
3: And she tells me everything. And and most of all, she tells me about being in the hospital room after he'd been diagnosed with cancer. According to Betsy, a doctor had asked Lance had he ever used performance enhancing drugs. And in the presence of Betsy and Frankie and four other friends of Lance, Lance goes through the drugs that he'd been using.
1: And Lance, holding his IV... Looking down, rattled off, EPO, testosterone, steroids, growth hormone, cortisone.
3: He lists them all. And Betsy is appalled because she and Frankie are due to get married on New Year's Eve of that year, two months later. And Betsy brings Frankie outside and said, if you're doing this stuff, we're not getting married. I'm I'm not marrying a doper. Really emotional moment. And, and Frankie lies and says, oh, no, I'm not doing it. And Betsy tells me all of this.
2: You've got Betsy Andreu on the phone and she's just told you that back in 1996, yep. when he's having cancer treatment, she was in the room and Lance Armstrong has said to a doctor, yes, I've taken EPO and all these various other drugs. Yeah.
3: What did you think at that moment? Well, I think that's brilliant because this is evidence. I kind of think a eureka moment yeah. because I, I'm saying to Betsy, would you be prepared to go on the record, you know, and uh, about this? And she's saying, well, I'd need time and I'd like to see what, what the piece was going to say, what other evidence you've got. I don't want to be the only person. Nobody wanted to be the only person. But I knew that Betsy was absolutely committed to the truth getting out there. And we would speak on the phone. I don't know how many times the phone would ring. And we might be about to sit down to a meal and one of the kids would come in and say, you know, you, you, you know, you've got to come. We're ready to eat. And the expression I always used I said, yeah, yeah, it's only Betsy. Because everybody in the house knew that Betsy was always on the phone, on the case. She's, she is the most remarkable woman that anybody's ever met.
2: So Betsy Andreu became one of David's key sources and confidants. In 2004, after a few years of investigating Armstrong...
3: I linked up with a very good French writer, Pierre Ballester, and we'd written a book, came out in French, LA Confidential, The Secrets of Lance Armstrong. That book basically detailed the A to Z of Lance's doping. Couldn't get the book published in English, because Lance basically got in touch with all potential publishers and said, publish this book, we'll sue your ass. However,
2: they did manage to get it published in France due to the libel laws being more favourable to journalists. But it wasn't simple.
3: Just think, you're um, a journalist and you've done this book and the French publisher, Le Martinier and they were having the book like printed at a secret factory in the south of France because they were convinced that, that, that Lance was going to succeed in getting an injunction against the book. Was huge subterfuge in actually getting the book printed. And uh, Lance did go to court and did try and get the book stopped, and the French judge kind of kicked him out of court. What I didn't grasp in the early part of my kind of inquiry was that Lance was such a champion that normal skepticism was no good. You needed the biggest smoking gun that was ever invented to achieve anything against the guy. At one point, Lance used the sentence. In my view, I, I think extraordinary accusations must
0: be followed up with extraordinary proof. And Mr. Walsh and Mr. Ballester have worked four or five years
3: and they have not come up with extraordinary proof. And I'm sitting there thinking, why must the proof be extraordinary but Lance was 100% right the evidence had to be extraordinary to bring him down because the public so wanted to keep him on that pedestal because he was the guy who reminded us that you could get the worst cancer imaginable and not only could you survive it but you could come back and win the Tour de France seven times what could be more life-affirming
2: it's an amazing story isn't it amazing if it was true Mm. Coming up, David gets heated with his colleagues at the Sunday Times, but first...
1: Hello. Hello.
4: For those of you who haven't got a clue who we are, my name's Jane Garvin And I'm Fee Glover. If you're looking for a fresh take on all the latest news, taken with a pinch of salt, this is the show for you. Off air with Jane and Fee. So if you need a new show for your dreary old drive to work, your everyday dog walk, or just as white noise to drown out your offspring, then try us off air with Jane and Fee. Monday to Thursday on the free Times Radio app and wherever else you get your podcasts.
2: You've written the book. You've outlined the doping that Armstrong has done. It's published in France due to the libel laws being stricter, I guess, in the in the United Kingdom. But then the Sunday Times does actually get sued, essentially due to some of this book. Can you just explain what happened?
3: Oh yeah, talk about the most fraught times. Um, LA Confidential has come out to a great reception in France. The Sunday Times asked me, Alex Butler asked me to write an extract from the best bits of the book. The lawyers read it and they say, this is libelous. We print this, we will be sued. And they had already got a warning from Shillings, who were Armstrong's lawyers in London. And the warning said, you write anything about this book, we'll sue you. We That's were, nice. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were put on notice. Basically the Sunday Times said, we can't run it. I found it so frustrating being in the sports editor's office, having these arguments. Now, I wasn't seeing things clearly. All I was seeing was that I had been working on this book basically for five years. And I had got some of the best evidence anybody could ever get against one of the world's most kind of iconic sporting figures. I'm saying like, you know, it's the truth. And the people who have told me this will give you sworn affidavits. And they said, will they? And then I, I'm getting on the phone, they agreed to do it. And then the Sunday Times bit lawyer said, well, we still can't print it. We're going to get sued. Yeah. And basically I said, well, look, if you can't run this book, I don't want to work for this newspaper anymore. And it was incredibly emotional. And I just walked out. I drove home and I'm calling my wife saying, I'm done with the Sunday Times. That's it. It's over. And basically, Alan English was deputy sports editor, and Alan was Irish, and we'd known each other many, many years. And Alan said, "Look, you know, you've got to like give yourself time on this." And, and if I'm being honest, I, I got I was hardly halfway home, and I was regretting my decision. <laughs> and uh, and Alan is persuading me, saying, "I can write a piece, and um, that will represent the book fairly in the Sunday Times." And I said, okay, you know, see what you can do. Alan wrote the piece, which was telling what was in the book. And I remember Alan sent me the piece so I could look over it, you know. And Alan had done a really good job. But Alan said to me, he said, you read it, what do you think. And I said, Alan, it's not worth a word of fucking shit, you know. I said, all the good bits are gone. And Alan was so deflated, you know, he'd saved me my job. He'd saved the story. And I am the most ungrateful, horrible person you've ever met. And I just said, no, Alan, if I'm being honest, it's just like useless. And I could feel his devastation. And I felt still so angry that I couldn't I couldn't be diplomatic. And the peace appeared and we got sued for it. And I've thought many, many times since, you know, if ever there was an occasion for being shot for a sheep rather than a lamb. We were shot for a lamb by the piece that appeared. And the sheep was left on the editing floor, given that Lance sued us anyway. And you know what? The Sunday Times was proven to be correct. And the lawyers were correct. Because it did get us in trouble. It ended up costing us a million pounds.
2: Did it go to court? or Was it settled before that?
3: It, there were hearings, you know, yeah. on points of law. And we lost every single time. We ultimately published an apology and said, we're sorry, we didn't mean to, you know, to suggest that Lance Armstrong uses performance-enhancing drugs when we knew he used performance-enhancing drugs. Did you, um, and did you apologise to Alan English about uh, getting a bit het up? I don't know if I did, (laughs) but I definitely should have. (laughs) Because Alan, Alan performed uh, heroically. Lance referred to
2: you, he called you a troll. That was his sort of nickname for you. He didn't just call me the troll.
3: He called me the little fucking troll. And, uh, and uh, I, I always felt that was a kind of badge of honour in a way. It made me laugh. It didn't bother me.
2: Obviously, as a journalist, you're speaking out against him. But are there others maybe inside the cycling world or ex-cyclists that are speaking out against Lance Armstrong? And, and how's he treating them?
3: When I started investigating, it was funny. People come to you rather than you find them. And Greg LeMond and his wife, Cathy, got in touch with me and told me lots of stuff. Greg LeMond is a former
2: American cyclist who won the tour three times.
3: Most remarkably of all, Emma O'Reilly, who was Lance's former masseuse, Uh, she got in touch with me and she told me the most extraordinary story that basically cataloged the detail of doping within the U.S. postal team. And uh, she was vilified for that, as were the Le Lance called Emma basically a drunk, a whore, said Greg Le had a drug and alcohol issue, said Betsy Andrea was a crazy bitch. And he really went after people in the most vicious way imaginable. That was really tough for them because remember, I was doing my job for which I was being paid. If anybody deserves admiration in this case, it's the people who spoke out against
0: Lance. In 2005,
2: Armstrong wins his seventh Tour de France in a row. It makes him by far the most successful rider of the most gruelling sporting event on the planet, and all by a man that's come back from near death from cancer. He's a huge celebrity now. He's gone beyond the sport, really. At this point, he's dating the uh, the singer, Sheryl Crow. And I'm just gonna read to you the, the final words he speaks on the podium at the 2005 tour after his seventh victory. Armstrong says, finally, the last thing I'll say to the people who don't believe in cycling, the cynics and the, the skeptics, skeptics.
0: I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry you can't dream big. And I'm sorry you don't believe in miracles. But this is one hell of a race this is a great sporting event and you should stand around and believe you should believe in these athletes and you should believe in these people and uh i'm a fan of the tour de france for as long as i live and there are no secrets this is a hard sporting event and hard work wins it so um vive la tour forever thank you
3: right i mean i remember at the time Thinking, like, this guy is speaking directly to me. Now, that might have been me being very vain about it and being very egocentric. But I definitely was one of the cynics. And if you'd said to me, if we were to have a coffee that evening on the Champs-Élysées, if you'd said, David, he's won, you've lost, I would have said, yeah, that's absolutely the case. Well, you know what? I loved trying. Yeah. I loved the pursuit. The journalist I didn't want to be was the journalist who would never have undertaken that journey.
2: So, that summer's day on the Champs-Élysées back in 2005, it's all over. Armstrong retires from professional cycling with a record seven Tour de France titles. and David has, in a sense, failed. But, almost like a good heist film there's always a twist, one more job.
3: After three years of retirement, he can't stay away. He's offered, you know, one more chance to go back into the fray and see, can he do it? And he believes he can.
0: I just want to let you know that after long talks uh, with my kids, the rest of my family, close group of friends, I have decided to return to professional cycling in 2009.
3: It coincides with a time that Floyd Landis, his former teammate, who had served a two-year ban for doping, and he asks Lance for a place in, in Lance's team. And Lance basically says, sorry, Floyd, because you've tested positive, you're kind of toxic and we can't have you in our team. And Floyd thinks, so I take the rap for everybody. I'm the guy who gets caught. I lose everything, even though... You've doped every bit as much as I did. Floyd Landis then decides he's going to inform the official cycling world. You know, USA cycling, United States anti-doping, UCI, the world governing body in cycling. All of these people are going to receive emails from Floyd Landis saying, I doped when I was in the US postal team. Lance Armstrong doped, we all doped. Here is the detail.
1: The story in Thursday's Wall Street Journal reported Landis's claim. The journal also says Landis admitted to using performance-enhancing drugs. In a series of emails sent to sponsors and sports officials, Landis alleged Armstrong not only joined him in doping, but taught others how to beat the system. Armstrong denied the allegations.
2: But it was too late. The cat was out of the bag. And David had by this point written another book on Armstrong and doping. The leading officer in a federal investigation that was triggered by Landis’s confession told his team of investigators, "Before you ask one question, read David Walsh’s book.
3: When that way, I kind of feel I like had some little role, not in bringing him down, but in maybe motivating others."
2: And two years later, in 2012, UCI will ban Lance Armstrong from cycling and UCI will strip him of his seven Tour de France titles. Lance Armstrong has no place in cycling.
3: There is no question that going back to the sport that he had left in 2005 was Armstrong's single greatest mistake.
4: The disgraced cyclist Lance Armstrong has ended years of denial by admitting using performance-enhancing drugs.
2: One of the first things Armstrong did was pay back the Sunday Times. He
3: immediately recognised that his lawsuit against the Sunday Times had been founded on Lance having to perjure himself, and it was obviously morally bankrupt. What's he doing now? What is He's kind of a media figure, I suppose you'd have to say. He's got his own podcast. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Move podcast. This
0: year's... Uh coverage of the of the 2022 Tour de France.
3: He's good, he's articulate, gets interesting people on, he does a Tour de France commentary every day during the tour and it's a hugely popular podcast on the Tour de France. And now all this time on how do you feel about Armstrong personally? People might find this hard to believe. I would say there was never much personal animosity on my behalf. I just felt that I was pursuing a story. He happened to be the focus of my attention because he was the guy winning the Tour de France. He was the iconic figure. He was the leader of the sport. And of course, my attention was directed at him because if you could show that Lance was doping, you could show that lots of people were doping. I never felt any dislike of him. I mean, when we stared each other down at these press conferences, it was a battle of wills. But it wasn't like that I detested him as a human being because I didn't know him as a human being.
2: And if you could have your time again on this story, would you have done anything differently?
3: Maybe if I was a better investigative journalist, I could have done better. But I was who I was as a journalist. I know it sounds maybe a bit trite to put it like this, but my kind of overriding impression is I had a blast. You know, people say, oh, it must have been so stressful. And I would say, no, no, honestly, I never felt that. And then I say to people you know, have you watched All the President's Men, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, playing Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, and they're on the trail of Nixon and Watergate. I said, when you think about that movie, do you think of two guys who were stressed all the time or who were basically having the journalistic experience like no other and that they were completely energized by it in a much smaller way that was me during the Armstrong years, had a reason for getting up in the morning and and taking Betsy's first call.
2: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Will Rowe, and my guest, the chief sports writer at The Sunday Times, David Walsh. You can find all of David's writing at thetimes.co.uk and there's a link to David's most recent article about his time covering Armstrong in the description notes of this episode. Production support today was by Sam Chantarasak, the executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening.